The first thing to learn from all of this is the extraordinary plasticity of the brain. People think about that at the synaptic level, but that's also true at the genomic level. To me, that's extraordinarily promising because it means that we have the hope of making a difference for people with neurological and psychiatric disorders. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for episode 30 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. If you're like me, you probably still remember your first day of school, or the first time you met your spouse, or your first kiss. These are all examples of long-term memory, memories that are stored in your brain anywhere from a few minutes to the rest of your life. But how are these memories made and stored in our brains for such a long time? Well, long-term memory involves changes in neuronal circuits in the brain. The circuits are composed of neurons, or nerve cells, that communicate with one another through specialized cell-cell junctions called synapses. Scientists refer to synapses as plastic, which means that they can change depending on neuronal activity. Today we're talking about the transcriptional and epigenetic changes that are also associated with long-term memory. We're joined by Dr. Ted Abel, Professor of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Iowa and Director of the Iowa Neuroscience Institute. Ted's lab focuses on the molecular mechanisms of memory storage and the molecular basis of neurodevelopmental and psychiatric disorders. Ted Abel, thank you very much for taking time out of a very busy schedule to sit down with us and tell us a little bit about your work. So you've had a very distinguished career as a neuroscientist, and I read for about 20 years you were at the University of Pennsylvania where you were a professor there. And I think last year you recently moved to the University of Iowa, and you're now the director of the Iowa Neuroscience Institute. And I'm sure that having the opportunity of running your own institute was a big motivation for moving from Philly to Iowa City. So can you briefly talk about the Iowa Neuroscience Institute, what it is, and what led you to move to Iowa? Hi, Paul. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about our work and to talk about the Iowa Neuroscience Institute. Uh, yes, I moved uh, from the University of Pennsylvania to the University of Iowa in January of 2017 to found the Iowa Neuroscience Institute. At Penn, I was involved in a program that I ran called the Biological Basis of Behavior, which was an undergraduate major in neuroscience, and then I also directed a pre-doctoral training program in behavioral and cognitive neuroscience. The opportunity to move to Iowa was really an opportunity to start a new institute, to build research programs, hire faculty, and most importantly, to connect our research to the clinic to try to make a difference for individuals struggling with psychiatric and neurological disorders. We received a $45 million gift from the Roy J. Carver Charitable Trust to found the Institute. And that's already enabled us to hire 11 faculty. Wow. So we've been operating at sort of light speed. <laughs> Our goal is to really increase the research in fundamental neuroscience at the University of Iowa to make discoveries about how neural circuits regulate behavior. And our hope is that those fundamental discoveries will inform diagnosis, treatment, and hopefully eventually cures for individuals that struggle with neurological and psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia or addiction or depression or autism or Alzheimer's disease. 
Really interesting. So was the Iowa Neuroscience Institute, did it already exist or is that something that you had to build from the ground floor? No, that's something we built from the ground floor. I came into an empty floor of the Papa John Biomedical Discovery Building and, you know, literally established a new office and hired staff and faculty and research fellows. And we're still very much in the growing phase of getting this established. The University of Iowa has had a significant presence in neuroscience. In 2019, the Department of Psychiatry and the Department of Neurology both celebrate their 100th anniversary. Oh, wow. The Damasios were here in the 90s and the 2000s, that mapping uh, brain lesions and how particular brain regions regulated specific circuits. And Nancy Andreessen is a psychiatrist who is still here practicing. And Nancy's work in the 80s and 90s really established changes in brain structure and function in individuals with schizophrenia. So in a sense, the Iowa Neuroscience Institute was here to bring together uh, existing researchers. There are over 100 neuroscientists here. They bring in over $60 million a year in grant support, publish over 500 papers a year. Wow. My job is to sort of coalesce those and build some focused research programs of excellence and then increase our number and our strength by recruiting. That's really interesting. Sounds like a really exciting experience. I'm sure you're learning a lot and getting to do some really interesting things. Let's talk a little bit about your lab in particular. I know that you and your team are interested in understanding cellular and molecular mechanisms that underlie long-term memory. So I thought maybe we could briefly take a moment to talk about what are long-term memories? Where are they stored in the brain? I know that synaptic activity is something that's critical for formation of memory. So could you Briefly take us through how this process works on a cellular and molecular level. Yeah, so my, my lab and my research focuses in a sense on the permanence of memory. And I've been working in that area since I was a postdoctoral fellow with Eric Kandel at Columbia University. My training, though, prior to that, I think, is what sort of set the stage for the focus of my career and in part for our discussion here today. I was a PhD student with Tom Maniatis at Harvard University in the Department of Molecular Biology and Biochemistry, working on mechanisms of transcriptional regulation. And we were studying transcriptional regulation during developments in Drosophila and identified a molecule that drove tissue-specific gene expression that was very similar to other molecules that have been cloned in mammals that are called CREB, mm -hmm. CREB, cyclic AMP response element binding proteins. And so they have been found to play a critical role in memory. And as you said, memory sort of starts with the activation of neural circuits by an experience and the activation of synapses. The activity of those synapses increases their strength. Some of that happens locally at the synapse by phosphorylating proteins, by moving more neurotransmitter receptors to the surface of the cell so that the neurotransmitters that are present in the synapse cause a greater postsynaptic response. But long-term memory is distinguished by requiring gene expression, both at the transcription level and also at the level of protein synthesis and translation. And so what's clear for long-term memories, memories that in animals last more than a day or a week in humans can obviously last for decades, is that they require the activation of gene expression. And that's by factors like CREB that are activated by phosphorylation and then in turn activate gene expression. And so it's really by following these uh, mechanisms of transcriptional regulation that we've been led to what we think is a major mechanism of memory storage, and that is epigenetics, which is the stable propagation of changes in the expression of genes. We think about epigenetics often 
as being in the context of development, it was even transgenerational epigenetics. But epigenetics has come more broadly to mean the regulation of gene expression. And that's really been shown to underlie the storage of memories. Super interesting. One of our podcast guests recently once described epigenetics as kind of a soundboard with multiple switches that could control the expression of numerous genes. Do you agree with that? Is that an accurate analogy? I think so. I mean, what is stunning is the sheer complexity of it. I mean, we think about the brain, and when people think about the brain, they think about billions of neurons, each of which makes tens of thousands of synaptic connections. But when you think about it in our nucleus, we have histones that are modified by acetylation, methylation, phosphorylation, ubiquitination, simulation, others that I haven't named, crotinylation. And we have DNA that can be methylated, hydroxymethylated, formal methylated. Uh, and then we have long non-coding RNAs and microRNAs. And when you think about the complexity of that signaling processes, you know, there are tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands modifications of the histones alone. And so we really have an opportunity for that actually to be an information storage mechanism. Interesting. So this complexity kind of leads me to my next question, which is that, you know, when I was studying my PhD a long time ago in neuroscience at Northwestern, we didn't have access to genomics tools or genomics techniques. People at the time were applying recombinant DNA techniques and other molecular biology techniques to study neurons and culture and also to study the central nervous system. But this high-throughput sequencing approach was still somewhat in the future. And this was about the time that you actually became a professor at Penn in the late 1990s. So I'd like to get your perspective on how is next-generation sequencing, or NGS, changed the way that you study long-term memory? What has been the impact of genomics on neuroscience in your view? So there's been really two impacts that I think of studying gene expression on neuroscience and next-generation sequencing in particular. The first is the work that we do in my lab, which is the ability to characterize in a high-throughput fashion gene expression of the entire genome, and now even to do that at the single cell level. And we're beginning to do uh, some of that work and even the single nuclear nucleus level. And so literally now we can do experiments that we used to do, these so-called uh, nuclear run-on assays where we could look at inscriptional initiation. We can now do that using next-generation sequencing. Now that began, obviously, with more simple sort of qPCR and immunohistochemistry techniques to look at gene expression. It evolved into array-based techniques, which I used in my lab sort of very early on at Penn. And then now, obviously, is in sort of full-blown development with the use of next-generation sequencing. So gene expression is one way in which there's been a dramatic impact of next-generation sequencing on neuroscience. The other way is to study genetic variation. The next generation sequencing, array technology and next generation sequencing, which Illumina has really pioneered, have enabled us to understand better the variation that occurs in the genome and how that variation is associated with psychiatric and neurological disease. Without those studies of genetic variation that have really guided animal work to study uh, groups of genes that have been linked to disorders uh, in human subjects. I think we really would have not have made the advances that we've made thus far in our studies in neuroscience. Yeah, that's super cool. So I'd like to talk now about some of the work that you and your collaborators published recently in a really fantastic Nature article. The title of it was Acetyl-CoA Synthetase Regulates Histone Acetylation and Hippocampal Memory. <laughs> that's quite a mouthful, but I was wondering if you could 
kind of set this study up for us. Why did you do it? What were you trying to understand about memory? And what did you learn from it? Maybe we can even start out by defining acetyl-CoA synthetase and acetylation. Yeah, so let me start with acetylation. And, and let me actually start with first saying that this was work that was driven by Shelley Berger and Philip Muse, a grad student in her lab, and in collaboration with Vince Lusak, who was a grad student in my lab. And it was a tremendous collaboration because both Philip and Vince were biology grad students, and they sort of got together themselves to realize that they could put their heads together and make a difference in this project. Philip on the molecular level and Vince on the more behavioral level. So histone acetylation is the uh, modification of histones and other factors in the cell by the addition of acetyl-CoA groups. That acetyl-CoA is made by an enzyme called, a, a number of enzymes called acetyl-CoA synthase. And it's added to histones by histone acetyltransferases, HATs. Examples of HATs that we've studied include CREB binding protein and P300. And then these histone acetyl groups are removed by histone deacetylases or HDACs. And those HDACs are brought to DNA by co-repressor complexes uh, that include proteins like SYN3A. What's intriguing about histone acetylation and memory storage is that uh, a number of researchers, uh, my lab and a number of others, have shown that when you reduce the level of histone acetylation, you cause memory deficits. And most strikingly, when you increase the level of histone acetylation, you lead to memory enhancements. Hmm. One of the very few examples of a molecular signaling process that is a kind of, as you said, a dimmer switch, it's a dimmer switch for memory. And it's a switch that you can take memory by modifying histone acetylation. You can really take memory down if you reduce it or up if you increase it. This all started with a striking finding of Philip uh, Muse. And what he found is looking at neurons that had differentiated in a dish. Mm -hmm. He found that one particular acetyl-CoA synthase, acetyl-CoA synthase 2, that that was translocated to the nucleus when these cells differentiated to become neurons. And so that led to the idea that this particular synthase would be one that would act in the nucleus to drive the acetylation of histones. And so he showed that. He showed that by knocking down this enzyme, and that led to memory deficits. And then when this enzyme, the function of this enzyme was reduced, there was a reduction in histone acetylation. And then with next-generation sequencing approaches, Philip uh, and Vince were able to show that this decrease in acetylation happened specifically at genes that were induced by learning, and that that explained why there were uh, deficits in memory. So quite literally, there is metabolism sort of on the fly in the nucleus where you need it at genes that will be activated by memory. And this metabolism generates acetyl-CoA that then leads to acetylation of histones and the induction of gene expression that then enables the storage of memories. This, this is really fantastic. And one of the things that I liked most about your paper is that this epigenetic mechanism in regulating gene expression is not something that only happens in neurons in a culture dish. You actually saw this in vivo in mice. Yes. And those were really, I mean, the most challenging experiments. I mean, the, the experiments in cell culture were the ones that I think Philip was very creative in identifying this nuclear translocation. And that sort of shone the light right on where we needed to focus. And then we were able, using chip-seq approaches and RNA-seq approaches, to define these genes that are regulated during memory. And there's a set of so-called immediate early genes that are activated after learning, and they're all regulated by acetylation, and their regulation is impaired 
when you block this particular acetyl-CoA synthase. And the other thing that it really underscores is this connection between metabolism and gene expression. Right. You obviously have that with DNA methylation, and here you have it with acetylation. So that's the other thing that's kind of interesting more broadly is to think about this metabolic connection. So the research that you're doing answers some really interesting questions about what are the potential mechanisms for regulating these immediate early genes. But like any good study, I'm sure that you've generated so many questions as answers. So what are some of the questions that come out of your work and how are you following up on this really, really terrific study? So one of the main questions, actually, there was a very interesting News and Views article that Li Wei Sai wrote that accompanied this paper in Nature. And uh, she was uh, really gracious in, in summarizing our work and also in identifying uh, next steps and unanswered questions, because there really are, are quite a few. One in particular is the function of other enzymes that are involved in acetyl-CoA synthesis. Uh, one is ATP citrate lyase. And in particular, the function of the acetyl-CoA pool that is in the mitochondria. And so we're beginning to do some experiments to study that by studying genetic mutations that lack transporters that would block acetyl-CoA from the mitochondria, block its functioning, and a number of experiments to address other pools of acetyl-CoA. More broadly, there are a couple of other questions. One is, we studied histone acetylation, but what about other factors that are acetylated. So a number of transcription factors are acetylated. And is this the acetyl-CoA synthase we've studied, is that involved in providing acetyl-CoA for that? So we're doing those studies. And then there are some other uh, related modifications to acetylation that we're studying in general, the interaction of. And so really kind of using our initial study as a starting point, and then moving out to other sources of acetyl-CoA in the cell. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, which was in your description of the Iowa Neuroscience Institute, and you talked about combining basic research and translational research to make an impact on psychiatric diseases. So what are some of the clinical implications in the work that you've been doing on epigenetics mechanisms and memory? When I talk about learning and memory, I think most people think of dementia as one of the things that's, that's applicable to this work. But I know that your lab's also involved in understanding links between, for example, sleep and long-term memory. So can you talk about how your research might help us understand psychiatric diseases a little bit better? So clearly there's links in this work with epigenetics and dementia. There's been some very interesting work in this field by Andre Fisher and Li Wei Sai and others. And in that work, what's been probably most striking is the finding that by manipulating the levels of epigenetic modifications or epigenetic enzymes, you can reverse some of the cognitive deficits that are seen with dementia. And there's been studies genetically, there's now some drugs that target HDACs, as well as other molecules. We're working with some drugs that activate transcription to see if they can reverse the cognitive effects of dementia. So there is clear connections with dementia. One connection, though, comes from a work in autism. So if you look at the genetic landscape of autism, we have a good sense of the kinds of genes that are involved in autism. We've gone from a list of about 40 or 50 now to a list of several hundred. Those genes fall in two broad classes. One class are synaptic genes that regulate the function of synapses. And another class are epigenetic regulators that regulate uh, histone methylation, that are co-repressors, that are ATP-dependent chromatin remodeling enzymes. And so in the context of neurodevelopmental disorders, I think there's a lot of promise in thinking about these epigenetic mechanisms and how we may regulate them. 
And so I think that the epigenetic studies, as well as more broadly, the studies of chromatin biology are going to begin to really inform our knowledge of autism and neurodevelopmental conditions. That's really interesting and really hopeful for the future. Speaking of the future, I'd like to ask you, what is the thing or the things that excite you the most about the future of research and memory and neuroscience? Are there technical advances or research tools that you are especially looking forward to? So I think the first thing to learn from all of this is the extraordinary plasticity of the brain. And people think about that at the synaptic level, but that's also true at the genomic level. To me, that's extraordinarily promising because it means that we have the hope of making a difference for people with neurological and psychiatric disorders. And so this plasticity that we found in gene expression, I think, is going to be critical for the idea that we can treat these disorders. So that really is the broad picture that most excites me and I think would have a broad impact on society. In terms of our research, I think what most excites me right now is our work with single cell analysis of gene expression using next generation sequencing. And I think we're even as a field able to do some single cell analysis of DNA methylation and chromatin accessibility. I think that really is revealing the variation in the genome, as you said, both in the expression and activity of the genome and even in, in its sequence. The other thing that I think is very interesting is this idea that within the nucleus, there is an architecture that changes with experience and that drives gene expression. So I think understanding more about the nucleus as an organelle as a, and its functions, I think, are going to reveal a whole new universe of regulatory mechanisms. So those are the, the many things that I think most excite me. And then uh, hopefully we can eventually connect these to circuits I think one thing we see in neuroscience is the drive to manipulate circuits with optogenetics and with chemogenetic approaches. And I think we need to think more about how these circuit activities connect to the nucleus and to changes in gene expression that are really what underlie the long-term changes that happen when we remember something from our childhood or the long-term impact of psychiatric and neurological diseases. That's a very, very interesting picture of the future, and it sounds like you and your colleagues at the Iowa Neuroscience Institute have a lot of work ahead of you. Ted, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk about your work and your use of NGS in the study of the brain and neuroscience, and thank you very much for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thanks, Paul. So the development of NGS technology for measuring gene expression in the brain has had a profound impact on neuroscience. NGS and array-based techniques have enabled a better understanding of genetic variation in the genome and how that genetic variation is associated with psychiatric and neurological diseases. The extraordinary plasticity of the human brain at the level of synapses and the level of gene expression gives scientists the hope of making a difference for people with neurological and psychiatric disorders. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Ronald J. Wapner, Vice Chair of Research in Obstetrics and Gynecology for Columbia University Irving Medical Center and Director of Reproductive Genetics. We'll be discussing prenatal genetic testing and screening here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs>